Welcome to Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. Our host is Dr. Sven Estring with special guest Dr. John Ashton and our panel. Welcome back to Evolution Impossible. I'm Dr. Sven Erstring. We've been considering so much evidence that shows that evolution really is impossible. But is there an alternative to evolution? Or are we left in scientific limbo with nowhere else to turn? Joining me for this very important question is Harley Southworth. Thank you for being with us. Tim Turner, good to have you back in the studio. And Morgan Vincent, nice to have you as well. And last but definitely not least, we have Dr. John Ashton. And Dr. John Ashton has been doing research in this area for almost 50 years. And we're really fortunate that he has written all of this research up in his book, Evolution Impossible. In his own personal experience, Dr. Ashton has discovered that while evolution is impossible, there is a God who exists and who is able to intervene in our lives. Now, that's a really exciting thought. So let's explore the evidence. Now, John, you mentioned a few times that evolution cannot explain consciousness. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, as I've alluded to another time, we talk about our brain. Our brain has mass and it stores information and has certain processes in it. But our thoughts or our will are non-material. We can't weigh our thoughts. We can put our brain on a balance, weigh it, we can squash it then into it. Well, somebody else could. We'd, have, we'd be dead. Squash it, into so a, <laughs> squash it into a measuring cylinder and measure its volume. But our thoughts, we can't. And this is a fascinating, this is who we really are. Mm. You know, the inside this frame is a little boy, John, sort of thing. And uh, that's my thoughts. That's who I, who I am. As really, mm. Who I am is really a non-material. This body is just a transducer that converts my thoughts into mm. physical action so I can operate in this physical world. Mm. But who I really am is non-material. And it fascinates me that the God who created us, also describes himself as non-material, as mm. spiritual. And so it's through our mind that we communicate with God and hence, you know, prayer. And also God can impress our minds and so forth as well and, and communicate with people. And the Bible is a history of people who God communicated with. Mm. And this is, you know, this has fascinated me and there's so much evidence for this. Mm. So turning to our panel here, you know, if the God of the Bible exists, um, he's God of love and he's powerful as well. What would he be capable and interested to do? Well, one thing I heard once that was really, really beautiful was that uh, God exists and he looks like Jesus. You know, and that is a personal, friendly person who, who, who wants to invest in us and to, and to see us grow. And that's something I think I've discovered in my own life. You know, I journeyed uh, through deciding whether I was going to believe evolution or creation. And in the end, when I, when, I, when I saw the evidence pointing towards creation, I accepted that God was real and that the story of the Bible is true and that this, the, this God b believes in me and loves me and wants the best of me. And, and, and then that faith that reciprocated back to God helped transform my life and, and has grown me into and is continuing to grow me into the person I am today. And that's mm. just, uh, I, I find that to be a, a beautiful thing, that, that, that there is a God who is capable of taking a person and transforming them mm. and making them 
useful and, 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 and beautiful and believing in them. Mm. What about you, Tim? What would God be capable or interested in doing? Yeah, well, when I think about it, you know, just from a scientific perspective, um, the universe had a beginning. Everyone agrees that, that, that was, that's the case. Um, but uh, I guess according to Richard Dawkins, it came from nothing. And then he goes on to define what nothing actually is, which is kind of funny. But um, according to the Bible, God was the one who created everything. Uh, and so if you can create an entire universe, uh, not to mention setting up all the laws of physics, um, creating information in DNA, and just the, the, the magnitude of his intelligence must be completely off the scale and his power as well. And I guess, uh, why would he do that? I think uh, the Bible has some really cool answers about that and, and it's for his pleasure. He, he just, he loves being relational. And he, mm. like, like Harley said, um, it's it's something that he, he's craving that that interrelational, I guess, space. And so, I think yeah, if he's if he's like that, then that's awesome. Mm. Mm. What about you, Morgan? Yeah, similar to to what Harley alluded to, that God orchestrates times and events, uh, seasons, situations, and not just one in our life, uh, but multiple and many at different times in our lives to to get our attention. Uh, I like to think of God as, as a, someone who pursues. Uh, he's, he's like the, the hand active. of heaven. Yeah, he, he's, the, he's, the, he's the one who takes uh, the first step. Uh, one of my favorite words at the moment uh, is the word provenient, uh, which comes from two words that combine to basically mean that God's the one who takes that first step. Mm. And when I look at my own life and hear stories of other people's lives, we can see how God takes that first step in terms of relationship with us mm. and with humans. And so it's a fascinating thing to think of God being the one and wanting to be the one who enters into that relationship with, with us. Mm. So much so that even though someone can reject him, uh, can slide him, put him away for decade after decade after decade, God will still pursue them. God will still be the one to mm. want to dwell with them. And, and we see that absolutely personified in the life of Christ, uh, as both Tim and Harley mentioned as well. Mm, thank you very much, Morgan. That's really amazing. And um, Morgan mentioned the concept of times and seasons, and that uh, brought me back to your fascination with the philosophy of time, mm. uh, which we have talked about before. But in relation to, to God, uh, the, the whole concept of time is very fascinating, particularly with regards to prophecy. And that's one of the key evidence that you uh, raised to bring to our attention in the book. Can you, can you give us one of the, the best examples of a prophecy uh, which allows us to see to what God can do in our lives? Wow. Well, there are lots of uh, prophecies in the Bible, of course. There are you know, many prophecies. I think perhaps one of the most outstanding ones uh, relates to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar hmm. because uh, Nebuchadnezzar is a, you know, a very famous historical figure uh, he was King of the, Babylon. Well, yes, founded mm. the Babylonian Empire. He built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon for his wife, which was one of the seven wonders uh, of the, of the ancient, ancient world, world yes. according to Herodotus. And so uh, it's very interesting. The Bible recounts uh, Daniel, one of the Hebrew captives, after um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, mm. and that Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. And in this dream, he had a uh, he dreamt of a, an image 
uh, well, he, he had a dream and he couldn't remember what the dream was, but he knew it was a very significant dream. Mm. And he asked his wise men, you know, what did the dream mean? And they said, well, tell us what you dreamt and we'll tell you what it means. But Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty cluey guy and he said, well, if I tell you what the dream uh, meant, uh, what the dream was, you could make up anything. Mm. But I can't remember it anyway, so... Um, you know, you tell me what uh, I dreamt and then I'll know you can tell me uh, what the meaning is. Mm. And of course, Daniel was one of the wise men at the time and he prayed and God revealed to him what the dream was. And he told Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar said, wow, that's it. I remember that's what I dreamt. What Mm. does it mean? Mm. And essentially it was a vision of his empire and the succeeding empires of the world. His empire would be followed by the Persian Empire, would be followed by the Greek Empire, would be followed by the Roman Empire, and then that essentially would disintegrate into strong and weak kingdoms. And essentially, Mm. that's exactly what happened, you know. um, Mm. After Nebuchadnezzar died, his uh, grandson, I think it was uh, Nabonius, uh, was the uh, the king, and while his son uh, Belshazzar was in Babylon, mm. Cyrus's general Gobius came in and marched in, yeah, you know, and took Babylon in right. and uh, 539 BC. And then we had uh, the Persian Empire, of course, followed then Cyrus and Darius and yes. so forth. And then we had uh, Alexander the Great, Great came in, marched over, yes, mm. and and defeated. Um, Darius in 331 BC and then we go on and of course then the Greek Empire was divided up and then subsequently conquered by the, the Roman Empire mm. which then degenerated into the states of, uh, of Europe some mm. strong and some weak, some like iron, some like iron. The mm. fascinating thing is of course that a rock hit the bottom of the statue and filled and became the whole world and of course that represented that one day God will destroy the world and re- recreate it again. So Amazing. that part of the prophecy hasn't happened yet but all the other bits did. So what time period are we looking at here from when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream uh, all the way to the, the, the end of that fulfillment of the pro- prophecy? What, what sort of time frames are we looking at? Well of course Nebuchadnezzar was about 600 BC when he, mm-hmm. he first conquered uh, Jerusalem, first took Jerusalem. And of course, well, we know Europe is still there now, so it comes right through to the second coming. So it it spans the last part of the history of time. Mm. But some of the details are things that that fascinated me. Uh, For example, Belshazzar was not recognised in any of the secular historical records until recently, and yet it was written in the Bible. And so the critics said, oh, well, you know, it's another made-up story. Mm. But then they discovered all these cuneiform tablets that recognised that Belshazzar was the co-regent with his father and was actually the king of Babylon at the time while his father was actually fighting a diversionary action with Cyrus. Mm. So archaeological evidence is supporting the the biblical account. Yes, and also the Bible talks about how uh, Belshazzar was in an all-light drunken revelry feast that they used to have. The Bible talks about that. And it's interesting, Xenophon, a uh, later Greek historian, uh, uh, records that, yes, that was actually the, the case of what was happening when uh, Gobius took in and that uh, Belshazzar was slain next to his throne. So we had later, you know, all this uh, confirmation and corroboration of, of the historical accuracy. And, and there's so many of the other prophecies that are like that. Mm. Mm. And what about you guys? Have any of the prophecies in the Bible really impressed or inspired you? Or have you ever um, seen the effect of this particular prophecy in, in your own um, uh, life or, or work or ministry? 
Yeah, I guess for, for me, some of the most powerful prophecies, I guess, are in relation to Jesus. Like you have uh, the ones in Isaiah, and it's like hundreds of years before Jesus was even there. You have the ones in Psalms. There's like over 300 different prophecies that Jesus fulfills every single one of them. And I think just the the surety of, of that, like you talk about the probability of how the universe could come into existence by itself or life forming and that, and just the, the probability of one man fulfilling all 300 prophecies is just astounding. And so you mm. kind of, like being able to see that God... Uh, God has provided us enough information to say, okay, well, um, I'm pretty sure that, that that was who he said he was. So, mm. yeah. um, One thing kind of in a similar area, but not necessarily a prophecy, but something we can look back at is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ mm. um, is something that, you know, is, is, is a historical uh, verifiable fact that Jesus Christ lived and died. Uh, and there's argument over whether he resurrected or not, but the, uh, the evidence that is seeming to mount and mount and mount is very clear that there is, that there is evidence that, that he, he did resurrect. You know, the different, you know, he, the, he appeared to uh, so many people. There's the, the records of it being written down by, you know, the apostles so soon after his death, as well as the, uh, the, the there definitely was an empty tomb because that's what the, um, that's what the, his, Jesus' enemies acknowledged, that the tomb was empty. And they made a story saying that all these Roman soldiers were asleep, you know, mm. which is a very impossible <laughs> story for these Roman soldiers whose life depended on them staying awake and their highly trained elite soldiers to fall asleep. But they recognized that, that the, the tomb was empty and so they had to make up this story to explain. And how would have they known it was the disciples <laughs> if they were asleep? Exactly. You know, yeah. So there was just all this, um, you know, there's all this uh, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus mm. Christ, which, I mean, and if you were going to found a religion, you know, like there's been a number of men in, over history who founded religions, you know, but Jesus found his religion based on the fact that he was going to die and resurrect. Mm. You know, that is such an unlikely, astronomically unlikely thing to happen in just a materialistic world. But Jesus mm. did found his religion upon that and, and everyone went around and, and, and proclaimed he's risen. And everyone's like, well, there's, there's proof for it. And so Christianity just exploded so rapidly. Mm. And Jesus actually predicted his own resurrection uh, while he was still Indeed. doing yes. his public ministry. Yes. So what you're pointing out is that there's supernatural miracles, supernatural mm-hmm. prophecy as as well. And, and John, I guess the question I have in mind is this, is, I mean, you know, I go on the um, the Bureau of Meteorology and I, I look up the weather report and, and I can get about seven days in advance and sometimes I get it pretty wrong, uh, which is which <laughs> can be a bit sad. Um, but... Um, you know, predicting two and a half thousand years in advance, hundreds of years, uh, seems like a bit of a long stretch. So how, how could God actually predict these things so far in advance? What, what power does God have? What, what's what's the, the nature of God for him to be able to do this? Okay, well, that's a fairly deep, you know, question to, <laughs> to get into, but and I guess a number of people have uh, argued with, well, is there free will and, mm. and so forth. Um, you know, some of my own thoughts on this is that God does help influence us and help us make choices. He doesn't force us to make choices, mm. but he can change circumstances so that, you know, we make choices over time. And he knows the future. Mm. Also, there's been different models, you know, portrayed that God, we often hear God can see the beginning of the end. Mm. And there's been, um, in some of the philosophical journals, for example, they say, well, if you imagine you had a plain sheet of paper and we're living in this two-dimensional space and we're like little ants crawling around on this space, but you've got a a pen going through your piece of paper, right? Mm. And this 
has the future on this side and the past on this side and God is out here and he's, he sees see the whole lot. But we only see this little mm. bit here, mm. but he can see the, the whole lot. So, I mean, these are just, you know, primitive models to sort of try and explain that God is outside time. Transcends time. And, mm. uh, you know, the whole concept of time and, and choice. But, you know, there, there's evidence that humans have known the, the future, certainly through premonitions and mm. dreams and this sort of thing. And so the, what you're saying is not only in the Bible do we have, you know, prophecies and, and dreams like Nebuchadnezzar, had, but also more recently there's, there's been dreams. Could you maybe share with us some stories oh, well, that people have had dreams? Well, that... it, it, it's, it's a real life scenario. I mean, earlier on we talked about Professor Werner Gitt. Now, his story is, is really interesting. He grew up in um, East Germany, which is very close to the Russian border. He's born 1937, so well before the war. When the war broke out, he was only a little boy. And, of course, towards the end of the war, uh, as the Russian soldiers came in, the people had to flee. Mm. And uh, his mother was uh, captured by the Russians, taken to the Ukraine where she died. His older brother was taken away and never heard of again. Um, But uh, Werner and um, his uh, uh, a couple of aunties were actually, he was quite sick at the time, they tried to flee but they were actually captured and held and then later expelled to uh, a town on the island of Wick, I think, in the North Sea. Mm-hmm. After the war they were put there to be dealt with until everything was sorted out. Now meanwhile his dad had been captured and was in an Allied prisoner of war camp and he had no idea where his family his was, was. Oh. where his children were, where his family were. He had no idea what had happened to mm. his wife or anything. But one night he had a dream. And in that dream, he dreamt that he visited a particular uncle. Mm. And um, he asked this uncle, uh, and his uncle was saying to him, oh, you should come and visit us. This is the dad has dreamt this dream in the prisoner of war camp. And in his dream, he asked his uncle, where do you live? And his uncle told him an address. And so he he woke up straight away and he wrote the address down. Mm. And he decided to write to that address. Mm. And at that address was an uncle that he hadn't had contact with for years and had moved there and everything was topsy-turvy after the war, but but knew where his son was. Incredible. And put him in contact, and his son was the sole. Werner was the sole survivor of his dad's family, mm. and um, but that's just one of many dreams. I mean, I can remember having a really powerful premonition myself. Of um, I was just returned. I was a, a, the tutor for the first year uh, med students uh, in chemistry at the University of Tasmania. And I used to give some Bible studies. And one night, travelling home, I was eager to get home. It was a rainy night, coming into Hobart. As I'm driving down the the hill towards the uh, city, I was strongly impressed, slow down, slow down. And I thought to myself, I'm only doing 60 kilometres an hour. And, uh, but it was slow down, slow down. And... um, so I slowed down just a little bit, but I saw these green light ahead and I thought, I want to get through the green light. And I was trying to balance. I'm slowing down, but I want to get that green light. And it was on a blind intersection corner where there was an office block on the corner. Mm-hmm. And just so I came into that light, a blue Datsun sports car came through at high speed. And I hit him. I was in a 56 Chev. And uh, I hit him and I spun him around. But a fraction of a second 
faster, he mm. would have slammed into the side yeah, of me yeah. and killed mm. me. If mm. I had a properly slowed down as God was prompting me, my shed wouldn't have hit him and I wouldn't have had this big dang mudguard on, <laughs> on the front. But praise the Lord, Listen I wasn't to God, killed. That's the lesson. But, uh, and I, I did a study uh, among our research group when um, I, I wrote on a topic, uh, on this topic of evidence that people had seen the future because the future is, is random or chaotic from a human perspective, and so how can anyone know the future? Mm. Um, and there are so many cases where people, particularly Christians, have had powerful premonitions that have protected them. Mm. And even uh, among the staff, we had about 100 staff, and I think out of the 100 staff, there were five people who had had powerful premonitions that warned them mm. of danger. Mm. Mm. I have a question in, in regards to this. I was reading recently about a magician by the name of James Randi, uh, who created a, uh, a competition, basically. He was, he was an atheist, and he created a competition uh, for anyone who you know, claimed to be a diviner or a, a psychic or uh, you know, telekinetic or, or have some other kind of you know, clairvoyant, supernatural power or whatnot. He created a, a, a challenge for them to be able, if they could prove under scientific, verifiable, testable conditions, uh, that they had a supernatural gift, he would give them a certain amount of money. It eventually grew up to being around about, I believe, $100,000. Uh, it might have been a million, if I remember correctly. But over a period of 50 years, not a single, you know, thousands of applicants came through and not a single one was able to demonstrate a supernatural power, a supernatural gift. And it kind of like seems that like when we try and prove supernatural things in science, we can't verify it and test it. And also, I guess, coming back to evolution, you know, we've, we've remarked on how it's impossible to be tested and verified in a, in a laboratory uh, setting and so forth. So if we have these two you know, different things that can neither be, be, be verified, where, where should we go? Well, I think we have the testimony in Christian literature of so many Christians who have testified to God's leading in their life powerful changes in their in their life like Werner and Werner Gitt's story is just one of you know thousands but hundreds of thousands probably of examples and people know and experience in themselves and I do too similar to you that God has changed you when I accepted God uh, my whole attitude to life began to to change and God began to to change me and you realize that's a real experience that that happens and I guess God has warned these people. So there are so many stories of miracles of people surviving under different conditions. Mm. You know, we think of um, that uh, soldier in the Second World War that, uh, that rescued all those uh, people. Desmond that, Doss. Uh, Desmond Doss, I made the film mm. about on Hacksaw Ridge. You know, he made mm. all those trips up there. People being shot all around him, but he wasn't shot. Mm. And people say, well, hang on, there are good people that die too. But, you know, it seems that God at certain times says God when God has miraculously protected people. Mm. You know, I think of the story of Harriet Tubman that led all those slaves to freedom, you know, an uneducated woman. But she said she heard the voice from God. God would tell her to go this way or back that way. Mm. And she made all those journeys and she was never caught and took all those people to freedom. So it seems that when there's a purpose that there are times when God intervenes mm. and blesses uh, his people, he protects them. I mean, we, my, my wife and I have had, you know, answer repair just this last week while on, on holiday sort mm. of thing. We've had so, I've had so many personal answers to prayer. I'm writing that in a book at the moment. I'm up to about 60,000 words. I've experienced this myself. And of course, there are many other Christians mm. that have written these books 
of uh, particularly out in the mission field where there'd been no resources, you know, mm. and I think of say Mary Slessor. Here was this young Scottish woman who went to the Congo in the 1800s, walked barefoot into the jungles and converted the cannibals. Mm. You know, so we can see the power of God is working where it's working in the power of good. And there are so many stories like that, that mm. I think they all add up that there is an intervening God that we can come to and we can trust. And while we don't necessarily have specifically our answers to prayer necessarily at the time, what I've learned is that we can trust that God has our good in the long term. Mm. And I can see that now of prayers that I've prayed over 10 years ago on particular uh, personal matters. And now I can see God didn't answer the prayers. And I remember praying and saying, God, I can see you're not answering my prayer. You're blocking my path. Each time mm. I make a move, you're blocking it. And now 10 years later, I can see why and all the extra good that has come out of it because I didn't pursue that, that particular path at that time. Mm. Um, and, but I couldn't see it at the time. Mm. I thought that I was right, I was pursuing the best path. And certainly this whole concept of, of the supernatural, but also the, the limits of science in terms of being able to test it. Tim, did you have any questions in, in that area for, for John? I did actually, but it partly comes from my own experience. So when I was, when I was a, a little tagger, um, I had a, I've actually still got a genetic blood disorder and uh, they had to do an operation when I was really little and my hemoglobin levels were, were really low. Um, and they were not able to operate when their, when their levels are so low. And so my, my dad um, got his Bible out and saw, you know, you anoint the kid, get the elders of the church together and stuff. And my hemoglobin levels almost doubled mm. um, overnight, which is medically unheard of. And so they were able to do the operation. And, and um, after things like that, where my, I'm laying in a hospital bed and there's pain all through my abdomen, and I look at my mum and just say, pray, she prays, pain disappears and goes away. Mm. I'm kind of wondering what what does science do to personal experiences? Like they I know that in in some areas of science they will validate someone's experiences. This is something that is actually, you know, we can test this, it's happened and it's repeatable, all that sort of thing. But what do they do when they have supernatural experiences um, in in the human realm? Well some of those have been recorded in books and there have been studies, but they don't have an answer. That's that's the problem. Mm. Do, do you think that's because the supernatural is, is not in, able to be put into a test tube, or? Well, that's right. You can't. We can't force God. Mm. That's the bottom line. We have to trust. Mm. And you know, it's it's incredible to to reflect on how God can work in our lives. He is a God who really does want to intervene and show us that He exists. This is the last episode in our journey, Evolution Impossible. However, your exploration of this fascinating topic can continue. If you haven't already, we invite you to get a copy of Dr. John Ashton's book, Evolution Impossible, and delve deeper into the origin of life itself. It could change your life forever. But even more importantly, we would like you to continue this journey with God himself. The last book in the Bible called Revelation paints an amazing picture that God will recreate this world to be a new world, a place where there's no more pain or suffering or death. We want you to be with us in the new earth. And I'd like to invite you to join with me as I pray with you as you consider this decision for eternity.
Father in heaven, we've been on this journey of exploring evolution together. We've discovered that all of the evidence points to the reality that you created life and this world, just like the Bible says. Please be with every person who's been watching this program. May your Holy Spirit speak powerfully to our hearts. May we know that you sent your only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us personally, so we can accept the free gift of a restored relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us on Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au or call us within Australia on 024973 3456. We'd love to hear from you.